Well, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'm Richard Layard from the Wellbeing Research Programme at LSE. This is Mike Coop, uh, the CEO of Sainsbury's. And you might wonder uh, how we come to be uh, here discussing uh, these, these issues and indeed what we have in common. And of course, what we have in common is wellbeing. Um, so I think, Mike, for some years you've had the great interest in this. Um, and others at Sainsbury's likewise. Um, and through various contacts, about two years ago, um, you found us, or we found you, um, uh, because we were researching uh, on the causes of well-being. And as a result of this process and other contacts, the first fruit has been this, Sainsbury's Living Well Index. Uh, I hope you're aware of this. This comes out every six months, and it's a really interesting survey done by the National Centre for Social Research um, of uh, the factors affecting the well-being of the British population, the same people each uh, six months. So, uh, and it goes much more deeply than the government's uh, survey of uh, well-being, which is done by the ONS. Um, it, and it, it, it takes different topics uh, at different surveys and so on. So I, I just literally randomly opened this. So here are, figure 10, the eight factors that explain the most difference between the typical person and the top 20% of people in terms of the, their satisfaction with life. Now, you probably could guess what it turns out to be the second, but I doubt if you'll guess the first. The first is sleep quality, the second is sex. Um, and, and then it goes on, job security, health of relatives, contacts with neighbours, support network. I income is not in the top eight factors. Um, they're all to do with relationships. Uh, and this, this is basically the same story that we have found. So, Having advertised you, I'm allowed to advertise us. <laughs> You're selling a book. <laughs> yeah. This is the work we've done on um, the various British cohort studies, which are famous worldwide, where you can trace what factors have affected people's happiness. And again, we've got very similar graphs to the one I showed you before, show you the huge importance of relationships uh, at work, quality of work, uh, relationships obviously in the family, uh, relationships in the community and and mental health uh, and actually we found which was really interesting that after mental health which is the biggest single factor the quality of work came through as the second biggest factor explaining the variation of happiness uh, in, in the British population um, so uh, who better to be discussing this with than Mike, uh, who I think you employed about 200,000 people? Yeah, about 185,000. Uh, 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 okay, there you go. Um, Mike has uh, been uh, in grocery retail nearly all his life after having read physics at university. So, uh, wait for it, he's worked for Tesco, Asda, Iceland, uh, and in 2004, he joined the board in Sainsbury's and became the chief executive in 2014. I suspect that nearly all of us are your customers, but it'd be interesting to see uh, who's been there in the last, last week. 
Who's not been there? Yeah, I was going to say, who's not been there? <laughs> That's remarkable. That is actually <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, there's got good. a few round here, so, so I'm not so you're, you're at home, Mike, and welcome, welcome again to the, to the school. So I'm going to ask Mike some questions, and then he, I think he might ask me one or two, and then we'll have a, a free-for-all um, for uh, the rest of the session, and we'll, we'll finish at quarter to eight. So, I wanted to ask you first, basically, why you're interested in this whole issue of well-being. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, from a personal point of view, for reasons you've already talked about, um, I have a personal interest, but uh, if I think about the company that I run, we have a straightforward vision for our business, which is to be the most trusted retailer where people love to work and shop. And if we start unpacking what that actually means to both our customers and the people that work for us, it has all sorts of implications if you're going to run a business that is consistent with that fundamental idea. So, um, as you say, we've gone about trying to understand for both our colleagues, the people that work in our business, and our customers, uh, what we can do as an organisation to improve um, their lives in their broadest sense. And, you know, our advertising strategy uh, and strapline is the idea of helping our customers live well for less. That's very deliberately ambiguous. It has implications in terms of the value that we offer our customers, but it also goes beyond that in terms of the broader good that we can bring to, to society in the way that we run our business. Uh, and, of course, on the back of the um, basic tenant, we then did some work on understanding exactly um, what... Um, improved people's lives, which ultimately led to the report and indeed the ongoing tracking of looking at our customers, understanding what works for them, what we can do differently, and also the changes in behaviour in terms of the environment around them. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if, if, if we could discuss some practical ways in which you think... Um, Let's, 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 let's do the workers first. Yeah. <laughs> um, sort of practical ways in which you can make... Um, job uh, a job more enjoyable um, because one of the things which has, has shocked me I must say since I started working in this area um, is how little the average person likes their work I mean I think I think we are very privileged most of the people in this room to be you know very much uh, excited about our work but um, the average uh, American certainly um, likes work uh, less uh, than anything um, except uh, being sick in bed. Um, so they would rather be doing housework than, than their job. I mean, this is, this is pretty, <laughs> pretty awful. You're setting me out well for this one, then. <laughs> pretty, pretty awful situation. And um, if they're asked... Uh, people construct a diary, so they record each hour of the day what they were doing and who they were with and how they felt. And if you look at which time of day is the worst, the worst time of day, I don't know if you can get it to be, the worst person to be with is your boss. I mean, people are least, they least enjoy the time with their boss of all their experiences during the day. I mean, I, I feel this is a terrific you know, serious reflection on the, the, the whole management ethos in, in our Anglo-American society. And I think that the, the same sort of findings have come through in Britain um, as in America. So uh, there's, there's something there, I don't say it's that bad in Sainsbury's, but there's something there which we would like to change. 
what are the practical things we can do to make life make work, work more enjoyable? Well, there are a few people in this room who work directly for me, so you might have to ask <laughs> them during the course of this conversation. Um, but I guess there are, I mean, there are a couple of observations, and they're pretty consistent with, with what you've just said. I mean, the first point for us is that, in the end, wherever you are in an organisation of the size of Sainsbury's, you have to have a sense of purpose, and mm. you can only give people a sense of purpose by um, communicating with them literally week to week, day to day, and quite often within day, about what it is that we're trying to achieve as an organisation and what role they specifically play um, against that purpose and that quite often greater purpose as, as far as an organisation like ours is concerned. To your point, the overwhelming evidence that we have in our organisation is the single biggest um, determinant of how you feel about your work is your boss. Yep. And um, that's not me. Um, it's in most of our... Um, business, um, the shop that I work in, and either the store manager that I work for or quite often the department manager I work for. And so much of our feedback from our colleagues is around the, the little things mattering, um, saying hello, goodbye, how are you, mm. um, having a genuine connected relationship with the people that work for you and with you. Um, and if you connect that communication with um, in effect, respecting people um, on an individual and personal basis, you go quite a long way to creating an environment of, uh, of satisfaction. We measure this, so we have a, an employment survey. It's, we've talked about whether or not it asks the right questions, so um, certainly um, we need to look at whether we're asking the right questions, but nevertheless, we have uh, a measure of our colleague engagement it's relatively high. It kind of currently rates at 71%, which on a scale of 0 to 100 is, is um, good, but no doubt could be better. Um, and indeed, my own personal incentives, at least one of my personal incentives, is around that measure of colleague engagement and, and colleague satisfaction with us um, as an employer. So there are a number of things, but by far and away, the overwhelming factor in terms of determining people's uh, Engagement is the leadership that they work for, and particularly their direct line manager uh, and their reaction and relationship with them. Yes. Um, I mean, what about the ability of the workers to influence actually how the work is organised? Um, do, do you, what's your approach to allowing people to feel that they can? say, well, it would be better if we did it this way, or um, couldn't we organise our rotor this way, or, or whatever. Do, do you have, in, do, you, do, you, do you see ways, do you have ways of institution, institutionalising some sense of control and, uh, that workers have over the situation in which they're working? Yeah, I mean, at one level, we run a, uh, you know, a highly organised machine um, that um, delivers you know, literally hundreds of millions of things to people every week. Uh, so in that sense, you have certain parameters that you have to work within. Um, but equally, we encourage feedback, and indeed I encourage feedback, um, almost on a continuous basis from our colleagues. So as an example, uh, this morning, um, the first thing I did was to get online um, on, on our internal network. We have a thing called Yammer in our business, which is basically a, a social media um, mechanic for businesses such as ourselves, and we have a thing called Yam Jam. And so 
this morning I was being asked questions and having points put to me by mm-hmm. our frontline colleagues and we had I think at the t- in total 3,800 people at 8 o'clock this morning who were engaged in the business enough to get online and then were engaged enough to also put points and questions and um, tell me exactly what's on their mind and uh, in my experience mm-hmm. our colleagues are more than comfortable with telling me what's on their mind as another example i'm out on the road reasonably regularly i probably speak face to face to several thousand people in listening groups where they get a chance to tell me what's on their mind but but what about the actual way in which which the team a team itself operates uh, and whether uh, the, the team members can have more direct influence over their own Situation, which is slightly different from the, the bigger questions that yeah. I would be asking you. I mean, we, we've we've discussed this, this this sort of issue, and you know there have been these experiments in the states where um, uh, there's been a randomised experiment, and and some teams have been uh, uh, organised so that they have regular meetings with the team leader, initially with a, uh, a facilitator to. Uh, try and establish a slightly new new type of relationship between the workers and their line manager um, are you are you do you do you think there's a role for experimentation systematic experimentation well I, w- uh, I would to see whether you can get good results in terms of quitting and and, 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 and other performance measures from that well we do in all of our shops and indeed our um, office just down the road from here have colleague huddles and we have them every day and Mm, mm. part of that um, with the leadership team is to talk about what's working and what's not working within an individual store literally on a day-to-day basis and to adjust in flight if things are not going in the right direction or we need to fix something over here or fix something over there so there's already an element of that Um, we also have a very flexible way of working so although it's not quite as extreme as perhaps self self-organizing teams one of the benefits that we offer employees is the ability to flex their time and to work different contracts right, to suit right, themselves right. and although sometimes supermarkets get um in inverted commas bad press for um you know the way that we operate um the actual degree of flexibility is remarkably high and a lot of people that work for us would um quite often be carers would quite often um be looking after their grandchildren as another example quite often second employee second employment Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and in that sense we offer a lot of flexibility in the way that people can adapt their work to suit their lifestyles and it's one of the big tensions in our organization because on one hand we'd want people to be more flexible in the way that they work with us um, have more skills and have more flexibility in terms of their time equally we'd recognize that literally tens of thousands of people in our, who work in our business have other commitments that they need to flex themselves around. Um, I couldn't ask you whether you're more enlightened than other employers. <laughs> but there probably are, are, are some who are not as interested in, in the well-being of the workers as, as you are. Um, and I, I, I chaired um, what was less grand than it sounds, which was a... Um, World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Wellbeing, <laughs> and we recommended that that firms should do this survey that you mentioned in a fairly standard way and publish the results on the front page of their 
uh, their annual reports, uh, just to get them to take it more seriously. Like many of us, for example, trying to get schools to measure well-being of children on the ground that you know, what you measure is what you treasure, and if, you, if you're putting it up in lights, you're going to take it more seriously. What do you think about, I'm not saying a law that says you have to do such a thing, but do you think that it should be more general practice to measure well-being and to make the results public in some way? Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge on any of this kind of um, measurement is the basis on which it's um, equal, uh, right. so that there's a felt fairness about the way that um, things are measured and, um, you know, um, equal pay would be a good example where the government has legislated a particular methodology. I'm not sure I agree with it wholesale, but mm. at least there's a standard way of, of measuring um, colleague engagement or um, happiness in work or, sorry, there's a standard way of measuring, um, you know, as I say, equal pay. Now, we'd have to find a way of making it fair in the course of public opinion because yeah. one of the challenges if you're measuring a company like Sainsbury's versus a professional services business, you'll get a very different potential score. Having said that, we do publish it. I mean, it's one of my bonusable targets, our colleague engagement, and therefore, ultimately, that's a measurement that gets published in, our, um, in my personal um, performance and ultimately the performance of the business. So in that sense, we don't hide from it. Um, but if it's a uh, universally recognised measure, then you'd have to do it on some kind of felt fair basis where the measurements were, were possible to compare across businesses mm. in a fair way. You, you mentioned the, the crucial feature of the line manager. Um, do you think that the line managers can, can be taught to be uh, more sensitive to well-being issues. Um, I know there's a whole industry now of people going into companies teaching managers to be better at produce, producing high morale uh, in, in their team. Um, have, you, have, you, have you done that or do you think there's a role for that? Well, we certainly do a lot of training, mm. um, but I'm a big exponent of um, hire for attitude and train for skill. Mm. And um, there is certainly um, work that can be done in recruiting the right people in the first place, and so bringing people on board who just have a natural empathy towards the people that work around them. Mm. Uh, you can certainly put that into your recruitment processes, and of course, once you've got the right people in the business, the actual training and the philosophy works better, for sure. Um, and again, we measure literally at a department level um, our relative performance in these types of areas so um, we can certainly see when it's not working mm. and we would actually be able to directly correlate the performance of an individual store with how well engaged the colleague base was right, is. Right, right. Uh, and so there is a not necessarily direct correlation but there is some correlation between um, worker satisfaction employee engagement and store performance I wonder if we could discuss pay <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I think many, many of my colleagues think that um, a lot of unnecessary tension and misery has been created by individual performance-related pay for people who are working in a team, forced ranking of people, and so on. W what is your philosophy about rewarding either individuals or teams for performance? We, um, we pay a 
base rate of pay, and as far as we can, that's universal to all of our frontline employees. There are some premiums that we pay, but they're, generally speaking, based on skills which are difficult to find in the marketplace. So, for instance, we pay our bakers more money um, because that's a specific skill. We pay some drivers in our online business more money because they're really difficult jobs to recruit for, particularly in the southeast of England. But we pay the same rate of pay, and then we look for ways of rewarding colleagues, both financially but also emotionally, by respecting and rewarding the right kind of behaviours in our organisation, particularly around when they've done a brilliant job of serving customers. And so we positively encourage that. So it's, it's, a, it's a financial... So it's financially or...? Or, or both. Um, well, quite often it's a thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I send letters to people. When I get letters from customers, automatically I'll send a letter to somebody and sign it personally for mm-hmm. doing a great job for customers. Uh, we also have things called love points in our business where colleagues can nominate each other for the right kind of behaviours, to, either towards each other or towards um, our customers. Mm-hmm. And that's a financial reward, um, but it's a softer version of um, hard targeting. Inevitably, there has to be in any business some in some areas of our business at least, some form of harder targeting, um, for sure, but we don't reward people on that basis. No, no. Um, Mental health is a big issue. And, and of course, um, one... one, It's difficult for many people don't even quite understand what's going on with themselves and they, they often need somebody else to, to ask are you okay and, and to help get some process of help in, in process. Do you have any systematic um, approach to um, identification of mental health problems and systems of helping people who have them? We actually have started training our colleagues to look for mental health I wouldn't say that Mm. or mental health issues I wouldn't say that we're systematic in the way that you've just described Mm. we recognize that it's a it's an issue we're doing a lot of work on raising colleague awareness and training our frontline managers to understand mental well-being and to start to help people Um, we have um, counselling support available across our organisation so um, where we see issues we can help people directly and we'd also recognise that under um, our broader duties um, we should make reasonable adjustments for people with mental health issues which um, are ongoing mental health issues and do uh, a a level of that support in our organisation. We employ a lot of people you know, with various forms of disabilities and we will make reasonable adjustments to, for those people to make sure that they can work for us and will have successful careers with us. I, I wonder if we could, could move on to the future of your, <laughs> your sector. <laughs> um, because because we, we know... Uh, well, let's find out. How many people, people here um, do that, have done, let's say, in the last month, any online grocery... Purchases. Interesting. Of course, you're, you're causing a lot of difficulty. <laughs> and uh, online purchases more generally? Clothing? Yeah. Consumer electronics? Yeah. Video streaming? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this, this raises obvious issues of you know, how you use your space. Yes, 
if, 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 if it's going directly to people's homes, it doesn't have to go into the store. Um, then there's also obviously the issue of um, uh, leaner and uh, 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 more lean management and less uh, inventories at the back there. So that's another saving of space. Um, then there's the automation of of your accounts and all of this, less space. Uh, then there's going to be even more robots coming along and doing things. Um, I, I would love to know what, what your picture is of the store of the future. Because um, some of us, uh, let's be honest, we, we, we want to be in on this act. <laughs> we, we like the idea of your stores becoming sort of places where community centres where people like to go uh, if you've got the space, it would help you sell them your goods, but it would also provide the kind of place where people can sit and, and, and meet other people even. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts about how your, the, the, the store of the future can play a different and, and wider role in the community? What I'd, I would argue, to start with, we already play a pretty wide role in the communities that we serve. Um, every store is representative of the community around it. Generally speaking, our employees are um, engaged in their communities. You know, they're quite often the local scout leader or the local JP or um, running the local charity. And so there's a huge amount of engagement already. Um, and if you go into any of our stores, you almost certainly see members of the local community fundraising or getting involved in um, other work uh, to support the, the local community. So at that level, we already play a role. And of course, if you're employing, in many ca cases, hundreds and hundreds of people in a store, um, you're already providing mm. um, some <coughs> kind of economic benefit to the communities that you, you serve. Um, but there's no doubt over time, um, as people shop more online, then high streets and traditional community hubs will become under more pressure, and you can see that already. Uh, the number of um, empty units on high streets, the types of occupation of units in high streets is changing beyond all recognition, uh, and we're in danger of creating, to some extent, um, some high streets that have no or very little retail left on them, and one way or another, that has to be repurposed, and certainly creating uh, a sense of community and finding ways of being able to reutilize that space for communities is one of the things that I would be an advocate. And my own view is that government should reduce, if not eliminate, planning restrictions so that these things can be Absolutely. repurposed. Uh, and then within our supermarkets, again, for reasons that you've already highlighted, we need to think about how we redeploy our space, and that should be orientated towards the communities that we serve. And there are already lots of things that happen in our cafes or in our spare space to support the communities that we operate in. Um, you know, largely, in, uh, not always, but largely, um, uh, largely as a result of our colleagues and their representation of the societies that we serve. Um, um, you're obviously, your heart is in the right place. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's all wonderful. But, but what, what's your philosophy? if there's some conflict of interest to an extent between the well-being of workers and, and say, the uh, requirements of, of, of shareholders, 
Um, I actually took the trouble this morning to ring up my friend Will Hutton, um, who was reasonably well informed about the law, and he told me that the Financial Reporting Council this, this, this year has set, given instructions uh, in its guidance on corporate governance that say that um, boards should take into account not only the interests of shareholders, but the interests of, uh, of, of workers. Um, what, what's your philosophy on that, if there was a conflict of interest? It's a, it's a really interesting and um, significant point of tension. Um, I've got the Co- Companies Act in front of me, and I can read you that... 172. Uh, uh, promote the success of business for the benefits of its members in bracket shareholders. That's the 2006 uh, uh, Companies Act. Uh, uh, and uh, uh. at one level, you could argue that is my sole fiduciary duty. Mm. Um, having said that, you can't possibly run a successful business like Sainsbury's unless you have engaged employees... Um, you mm. have customers mm. who trust you. You have customers that trust the people that work for you, and those employees um, are working together in teams with a sense of purpose. So um, I would argue very strongly that, that the, the requirement to deliver shareholder value is not inconsistent with the requirement to manage our colleagues in the right way to deliver for our customers and ultimately deliver for our shareholders. If we don't do that, then we will fail as a, as a business, that is for sure. Um, but there are always going to be tensions. Um, there wouldn't be great to be paying our employees a lot more money, um, but equally we have to be more price competitive um, to compete with Amazon or Aldi or Lidl, and all the time you could characterise my job at its highest level deciding how we deploy the resources, whether they're capital resources or um, operating cost resources in doing the best job of balancing our um, customer requirements, our colleague requirements, and our shareholder requirements. Mm. But I would stand by our track record. I mean, in my time as the CEO of Sainsbury's, we'd in, we've, we've increased our employee base rate of pay by 30% against the backdrop where we're in one of the most brutally competitive markets in the UK. Uh, and in effect, that money has either come from our shareholders or come from our customers, one or the other, because it's, you know, there is, as the government says, there isn't a magic money tree. Mm. It all comes from the same pot. Mm. So we, we make, I make conscious decisions to, uh, in effect, invest in our employee welfare and in a, across a broad range of um, items, but specifically on colleague rate of pay, I think we would be at the leading edge of how far we've moved and how quickly we've moved. Right, right. Um, I think it's almost time to get people's uh, (laughs) questions and views, but um, I wanted to just have a chance of saying my take on this. Yeah, well, I was—I mean, I was going to ask you um, how you got interested in this subject. (laughs) Well, actually, I read Bentham at the university, so I've always always believed that the happiness of the people is the should be the goal for. A society, you would judge a society by the happiness of the people, and that the right way to conduct a government is to aim at the happiness of the people, and the right way to live as an individual is to try and create as much happiness as you you can in the world. So, um, I guess the, I guess the two things I was hoping hoping to see in my lifetime, <laughs> one of which would be. Uh, government making uh, the happiness of the people 
their explicit objective and really, really trying to find out what really does make it does matter to people and what doesn't. Um, and um, I think we would have very different government priorities if we did. I mean, particularly treatment of mental health in every country. And actually, Britain is a, Britain treats mental health better than any other country in the world, if you could imagine that being the best. When most people can't get treatment unless they're about pretty much suicidal. Um, uh, especially children. Um, so uh, that would be a huge, huge change of priorities. Um, and I think the whole attitude we would have to supporting families would be very different. Um, the whole attitude we have to education would be very different. We'd, we'd be expecting schools to improve and help uh, the well-being of the children as much as to teach them subjects. Um, so I, th I think there, there is a, a different world to be, to be brought into being if the government had different priorities. But also, I do think the second thing that I, I would really like to see is a change in the culture which individuals practice. I mean, what do they think is their purpose in life? And I think we've got um, a very... Um, self-centred culture has developed, particularly with decline of religious belief and no real secular um, uh, culture that's, that's replaced it not, not strongly enough. Um, so that, that's the reason why some of us founded this movement called Action for Happiness. You see, we're, we're trying to get into his shops, this movement, Action for <laughs> Happiness. I'm sure you were. <laughs> um, so, so we founded this movement. Um, so the members pledged to try, the, the, what's the principle of your, your life is to try and create as much happiness in the world as you can uh, and as little misery. Um, but but it's, it's not just a sort of pie, pie in the sky. You have to meet regularly. <laughs> with other like-minded people in order to sustain your, yourself <laughs> and sustain your commitment. Um, so we're trying to build up this movement of people who meet regularly um, to discuss what really matters in life. <laughs> uh, and we offer them uh, a, a sort of eight-session course to get started, and then we offer them um, material for monthly meetings where you would go on with a different theme for each month. Uh, a teeny bit like the sort of churches provide a sort of materials for people to work through the, the year. So we're, we're providing materials. We've got a million followers on Facebook. So uh, we're, we're good online, but um, we've now got about 250 groups around the country. So um, this, is, this is coming along. But... Uh, we, we would very much like to have some of this empty space of yours <laughs> to, to have these meetings. But I think there are lots of, lots of groups of this kind which, which have a lot of difficulty. Um, you know, churches have got buildings that have been there for a thousand years. There are, there are, there are civic organisations that have a lot of difficulty finding space. And I think that you can make... I think we've used this word agora, haven't we? Yep. Like, the, like the sort of the Athenian agora, the place where people meet around the great issues of life. Um, CAB, all these other organisations, they, they all have, have needs for space. And it seems to me that you, know, you can support both these objectives. I mean, you, you can support the objective of 
running an organization with well-being as well-being either either of customers or um, or workers subject I would rather like to think of it as a sort of to the constraint of the, share, the shareholders are a constraint that you have to you have to observe them but the, the aim rather as you said at the beginning the aim in practice is the well-being of the the, the customers and the and, and the workers um, that you can do and then you can also support some of this community stuff aren't they is there anybody with, with your space is there anybody or any countries or um, businesses or um, uh, governments that you would point at as doing a good job in this space? Or do you think, I mean, by implication, you're not particularly impressed with the UK government? Um, well, the UK government did well for a time because it did at least right. initiate the measuring of well-being. Um, and uh, we... The civil service actually is hugely interested in this. So, so, I mean, if you go and give any talk in any government department, you get 100 people coming in along at lunchtime. Um, so, uh, and this was partly because Gus O'Donnell, when he was cabinet secretary, was already pushing this. So there's quite a, a, a depth of, of understanding in the civil service. We haven't really penetrated the political class very, that well in Britain. But I would say the leading organisation that's pushing this is the OECD. Um, so they've got all the members now to measure well-being. Um, they've had six well-being conferences, one that I'm going to uh, in uh, Korea in a couple of weeks' time. And so they're, they're pressing their member states to make well-being the objective of the government. So they're, they're very much on side. The UN... Um, has a World Happiness Day, <laughs> and, and they, on which they host um, the publication of the World Happiness Report, which I'm involved with. So there's a, a sort of the elements of a World Happiness Movement uh, coming. There, there, are, there are some small states which have it as an explicit objective, but no major state has made it a complete objective. So we're, we're working on it. In, in France uh, and, uh, and Sweden and Italy, uh, any, any government proposal has to have, uh, be evaluated in terms of its impact on well-being. But that's, a, that's not to be the decisive criterion. It's just something that has to be done on paper. So you know, things are sort of moving. Mm. And the happiest country in the world? Is it still Denmark? Well, no, I think, isn't it Finland this year? I think it's, I mean, all, it's the same ten countries that are always up at the top, which are all the Scandinavian countries, Netherlands, Switzerland, uh, sometimes New Zealand, okay. Australia. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. And they are, especially the Scandinavian countries, ones in which there's less of this harsh culture, you know, me first... You're meant to not trying to show off how different you are from everybody all the time, <laughs> but to try and find what you have in common with other people, which I think is so much nicer. Yeah, the further you get from the equator, the more, the more you have to cooperate to survive, I think. That's probably true also. <laughs> well, I'm, no, I mustn't say there may be some Roman Catholics here, but it's also interesting the distance from Rome 
is quite an interesting. <laughs> is that good or bad? Good. Good. Okay. The yeah. further from Rome or the nearest yeah. Rome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fact, and uh, within Europe. Um, now, I think we're ready to have have a free for all. <laughs> so we got we got uh, just about half an hour. Um, we've got some roving mics. Um, who wants to uh, to go first? Lady here. And please speak up because certainly I'm one who can't hear very well. Yeah, I'll try. Um, question is. Um, you have the um, manual or charter for an organization, a big organization like Sainsbury's, which is great and all well. But what about the vast majority of people who work in SMEs uh, in Britain or other countries? I mean, how, how could an organization like Sainsbury's or similar help to increase well-being for you know, the individual worker, the small business, etc.? Yeah, that's um, a very good question indeed. A, a lady just to your right, the lady in the red jacket, is responsible for all of our own brand and own label sourcing, so it's probably a long conversation you could have with her, and she's um, probably the world expert on anything to do with food, in my experience, so she knows the answer to every question related to, to food, um, whether it's the science or um, the relationships we have with the companies that ultimately supply us. And we take very seriously our responsibility in the way that we work through our supply chain. So um, measurement, um, either indirectly or directly, of the employment practices of the people that supply us is front and centre of one of the things that we regularly audit. Uh, it's not always easy because many of the things that we buy um, have several steps in the chain of custody, and so we can do a pretty good job of first-level suppliers. Uh, and we'd certainly be looking at auditing employment records, looking at all of the issues to do with um, forced labour and employee representation. Um, but once you get beyond that in a supply chain that's as complicated as some of the supply chains we operate, it becomes more challenging, more problematic, but nevertheless something for which we have a direct responsibility. And, and you know, going back to the court of public opinion, our customers, they would expect us to understand where things come from how the employees within our supply chains are treated uh, and therefore hold us to account if we fail. Um, and you know, if you multiply, if you look at the suppliers to our business, they probably employ um, literally millions of people, um, either in the UK or outside the UK. And about we, ha we have about 1,600 grocery suppliers, but 800 of those would account for less than 1% of our turnover. So about half of our suppliers are extremely small um, and therefore, generally speaking, need help on these types of issues. But I, I would point you towards Judith, who's sitting <laughs> two, row, or two, two doors down, because um, you'll be able to expand a lot more than I have been able to. <laughs> oh, you. Oh, that's a bit unfair. Um, Mike, Make I it short. <laughs> yeah, well, um, at the turn of the, la the previous century, industrialists and businessmen were at the front of the social reforms, and we had people like Cadbury, Roundtree, the Astors, etc., talking about social ill and getting into that space. At the turn of this century, 
businessmen are vilified and the trust of the public have in business leaders seems to be fractured. How do we get the Henry Fords that we need to change the narrative in business now so business really does play its role in making the world a better place? That's, um, again, a very good question. I'm not sure I'd single out Henry Ford as perhaps the paragon of virtue, but there may be some other um, philanthropists, um, entrepreneurs of, of that era that, that might be um, a better case study. Um, but you're right. I mean, in the end, we live in a world where um, people like me are held to account, um, rightly or wrongly, in the course of public opinion for our um, decisions and our behaviour. And I think we are moving to a world where... Um, it's not just about the letter of the law, it's about the court of public opinion and how we are viewed as the way that we run our business and indeed the way that businesses are trusted in the way that they are run. So I think there is a gradual movement in the direction you're describing and I, you know, to the point about ultimately what am I accountable for, I have to be very comfortable with the idea of dealing with that level of ambiguity, making quite often... Um, shades of grey decisions about the rights and wrongs of a particular issue um, and all the time mindful of the fact that I have a requirement to deliver shareholder value um, and that's not an easy balance and I suspect you know, to your point about where businesses have been um, vilified or business leaders have been vilified it's because they've lost sight of that moral compass uh, and that's not an easy thing because the short term pressures for any of us especially when you're in a very high-profile job, um, are pretty intense. You know, if you're reading about the, the decisions you've made on a day-to-day -day basis, as I do, unfortunately, I woke up this morning to hear myself on Radio 4, and how do, I'm thinking, how, do, how does that happen? I'm in bed at the moment. That can't possibly be you know, true. But the reality is that we live in a very fast-moving world, a very um, socially media-driven world, and you know, what we do now will get reported in 20 minutes' time if we get it wrong. So there's not an easy balance and easy tension, but I do genuinely believe... Well, first of all, I believe that most business leaders actually start with the best of intentions. So um, there are always bad apples, but there probably are in any walk of life. My experience of the business leaders I come across is they're genuinely trying to do the right thing. Um, but sometimes people do lose sight of their moral compass, and it is absolutely incumbent on people like me to try and stay true um, to a general philosophy about uh, trying to do the right thing. Um, and generally speaking, if I can explain it to my mother being interviewed by um, John Humphreys on Radio 4 and she doesn't ring me up afterwards and say, what the hell was that all about? I've generally speaking done the right thing. Um, <laughs> but it's not always easy to deal with that ambiguity. Is that been blue? Hi, Mike. Um, I have a question regarding um, Sainsbury's and Asda since of the <laughs> And uh, I was just wondering, from the perspective of an employee, do you think there's a noticeable difference if I were to work for Sainsbury's one day and then Asda tomorrow? And uh, if so, like, what's your vision post-merger? Um, do you think there's some elements of Asda's culture that you can incorporate and kind of best of both worlds? Or do you see more of a uh, just incorporate Sainsbury's culture kind of thing? Yeah, I was just curious. I love this question. It's going to be really difficult to answer. I mean, my experience of our business, let alone um, if we were to 
merged with ASDA, and there's a long way to go in terms of the competition process, so we're, we're nowhere near uh, through that. Um, even in our business, every store has its own personality. Every store has its own characteristics, uh, and it's very much uh, a combination of the history of a particular store and quite often its geographical location. Um, and broadly speaking, Sainsbury's has history. I mean, Sainsbury's was started about 100 metres from here in Jury Lane in 1869. It's broadly a London-centric fresh food business which grew out from its uh, London heartland to um, go into the rest of the country. But even today, our largest market share is in central London, and it gets um, it's a bit like the... Um, distance from Rome, the nearer you are to here, the higher our market share, and the further away you are, the lower our market share. And Asda was started in Leeds and has a similar um, type of um, culture born of its history. But even in Asda, you'd find very different personalities in the stores that you visit, um, partly driven by the history of each store and partly driven by um, the geographic location of each store. So Going back to the sort of the broad themes of this evening, you would start philosophically with explaining to people what it is that you're trying to achieve as an organisation, and in the end, um, the philosophy of both businesses is actually similar. If you look at our public statements, we both start with the principle of wanting to be trusted by our customers, um, doing the right thing for our employees and our customers, and that then, if you start with that framework, you won't go far wrong. Um, in how you apply that framework, but also have to be open to the idea that open, running a shop in Aberdeen is very different to running a shop in Penzance or Holborn or a anywhere else, and, and therefore there has to be some degree of um, flexing of culture depending on individual stores, individual locations, and of course increasingly the world of online adds a whole new dimension to that as well in the way that you show up to your customers. But you would, you would want to have a framework which was clear for the total organisation um, about what its um, direction of travel is, what its philosophy is, and then to allow some degree of autonomy and flexibility in how that was applied within the organisation. We already have that. We, you know, we have Sainsbury's supermarkets. We have Sainsbury's convenience stores. Uh, we own a business called Argos. We own a business called Habitat. And we have a bank. So philosophically, um, we try and run the business at a headline level in terms of its, their values um, with a set of values which are consistent across the business, but the application of those values will definitely be different on a business-by-business -business basis, but even on a store-by-store -store basis, uh, depending on culture and history. Thank you. Hi, um, I actually have three questions. Um, oh, crikey, we're going to have to write these down. Only two for you, and there's one for Richard. So the first one to Mike is you guys were talking about the tension between business performance and employee well-being. And Mike, your biggest justification for why that tension existed seemed to be around employee pay and that because you're legally bound um, by your shareholders, you can necessarily increase employee pay in a way that made sense. And I think, you know, we, we live in a world where there's been behavioral economics has established itself quite a lot. And we've seen um, countless studies that financial incentives and traditional incentives aren't actually what drives employee well-being so much anymore. So what have you guys explored that question very much? And 
why don't you try and take an approach where you're actually trying to reconcile that tension properly um, at Sainsbury's? Is that just one question? Or... That's one. Oh, that's one. That's Have we got two to go? Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, the first point I make is, I, I'm, if that's the way it came across, then I wouldn't characterise it quite like the way you framed the question. Uh, in the end, um, we can only run a successful business if we have motivated employees who um, want to serve our customers brilliantly well, and that's wrapped up in a whole series of things. We talked a little bit about communication, you know, having a sense of purpose. We talked about regularly communicating with people about what's working and what's not working within our business. We talked about soft forms of incentivization um, as another mechanism. And we talked about making sure there was a feedback loop between employees and people like me. Uh, and there's, a, in effect, a, what I would call a servant leadership philosophy, so that you're starting with um, trying to fix things for our frontline employees so they can do a better job of, of serving customers. Going back to our Living Well for Less survey, um, how people are paid is not an issue until the amount they're paid doesn't cover their living expenses, at which point it becomes a very real issue. Uh, and so we do have, um, I believe, a moral responsibility to look for ways of being able to improve our employee pay um, because we know, you know inevitably we, you know, we're an employer who is pay paying people on an hourly Pay, rate of pay and above the national living wage as it's currently structured but nevertheless close to the national living wage and so the more we can do to um, reduce that tension if that's the right way of putting it for our employees um, amongst all the other things we do um, the more um, fulfilled they will feel not least because um, I say one of the biggest issues in for, our, for any employer or sorry employees is Pay is not an issue or money is not an issue until it becomes a big point of distress and then it becomes a major issue and it has all sorts of other um, implications through um, you know, mental health implications, um, you know, sickness implications, etc., etc. So I don't know if that helped, but I wouldn't characterise it as just one single issue. Yeah, no, it, it helps a lot. Um, and in all the initiatives you've um, described the engaging people and the purpose and the, if you like, more qualitative ways of encouraging um, people to engage more. Are those all related in Sainsbury's? Are they driven by the leadership? Do you, do you feel like there's a very clear sense of role modeling and, um, you know, cascading of social cues through the organization? Or are they more um, different initiatives that may start in different areas and don't necessarily make it um, to all of the different stores? Um, well, I would hope that if you went into our stores, you would see a similar, although in not every case identical philosophy, but a similar philosophy. And in the end, it goes back round the basic central thesis, which is people want to work for somebody that values them, um, that um, rewards them emotionally, as in says well done and thank you, uh, says hello to them and inquires about their family and a whole series of um, soft skills. Uh, and we recruit people very deliberately who um, start with that as their philosophy. And we train people and we measure our success um, across our business. So I'll have a very, inevitably in an organization that runs 2,000 shops, you have a, um, a spread, um, but with an employee satisfaction rating of 71, that against most benchmarks would be pretty high. Um, to get near 100 would be 
probably nigh on impossible in an organization that employs 185,000 people, but 71 is significantly ahead of the benchmarks um, that we would look at. But we would, it, it is a very large and complex organization, so to say that you get to a completely, in fact, you probably wouldn't want to get to a completely uniform way of working, but what you certainly want to do is to make sure that the personality of a store is properly appreciated and that you have the right leadership, which is, in my experience, the, the ultimate driver of employee satisfaction is how good is the leader in that particular store or that particular department. But it does also come from the top. You know, if I'm not doing it, then nobody else will. I agree with that. You're not going to ask Richard. He was... I, quick, quick, no, well, I, think, I think we should let, okay. let's, let's move forward. <laughs> I'll keep. Thank you. Um, really, you seem to have been talking about communication mainly. Uh, on the one hand, from leadership to the workforce, and on the other, sort of getting buy-in from the workforce. Um, that would, to me, seem sort of an inherent challenge for a business with 185,000 employees. Do you think there is a relationship between sort of employee well-being or you know workforce well-being and the size of a company, or are there any studies sort of looking at that element of this, that sort of relationship? I'm not sure I got the question. Uh, is there a relationship between the size of an organisation and its um, employee happiness or satisfaction? <laughs> I d uh, it's a very good question, and, and uh, we should surely have looked at it. And I don't, I, I, it doesn't appear in our tables, which I hope means that somebody thought of looking at it and found it was not significant. <laughs> but I haven't, I, I haven't seen. Does anybody here know the answer to that? Large organisations have higher or lower well-being than smaller ones. Uh, it's a good. It's a very good question. I am um, maybe to try and um, I, I, give a give a sorry. You can answer let, the question. Let, let's, yeah. let, let's immediately point out that you know there are two issues. I mean, one is the the size of the the company, let's say. The other is the size of the establishment. I mean, the the, the, the thing which the person experiences is the size of the establishment more than the size of the. <laughs> of the company, the employing company. And if you talk to the vast majority of our frontline colleagues, they would consider they work in a particular shop in a particular location, and that's their point of reference. Yeah. And so um, one way maybe of answering your question is if I look at the range of employee engagement and satisfaction, that would vary across shops, um, and there would be some really good ones and some less good ones, and our job is to try and get the less good ones to be um, better. And so I'm not sure it relates to size. It, in my experience, relates to leadership, um, corporate philosophy, um, and how you communicate up and down the line in your day-to-day -day dealings with the people that work for you. There are a whole bunch of other... In, that's overly simplistic. There are a whole bunch of other issues, but nevertheless, um, I'm not sure size in and of itself is a barrier to um, employee satisfaction. Did this gentleman have some knowledge about it? I, I, I was just going to say, I think it depends on um, people's purpose. And I think you spoke about it earlier on. I don't think it matters on the size of the organisation, but actually, if everyone has a, a thread through to the purpose of the organisation, uh, and I think actually, actually, we talked about the well-being then would align to that in terms of that, I, I believe, in terms of having a large or a small organisation that someone has that purpose of why they're there and connectivity to what they're doing day to day. 
And one of the measures is we ask our people, um, do they trust us to do the right thing? Do they trust the company to do the right thing? We get 91% endorsement of that, which is, in my view, quite incredible. So at least at that level, our colleagues trust us to do the right thing. Um, so, you know, again, that might be a measure of how well or otherwise we communicate the philosophy of the business um, amongst that employee base. Thank you. Um, I just had a question regarding the, um, in the increased automation in the stores, but also uh, what we'd mentioned with the um, proposed merger. Um, how do you balance organizational change with employee concerns or fears? Who? Um, there's, a, there's a gentleman here who's our, oh, in fact, there are two people here, um, our HR director and our um, store ops director in, in Sainsbury's who have gone through a significant period of time of change because we've been through a period where we have recontracted with uh, a lot of our colleagues in the last year um, and restructured our stores, um, restructured our management in our stores um, and finding the right balance between change um, communication of that change and also respecting um, people's own individual requirements is not an easy thing to do. Um, in that particular case, we would have consulted with the vast majority of people three times. Um, so imagine the interaction that would go on through that kind of um, period of time uh, and one way or another try to find the right balance between the needs of the company and the needs of the individuals. But that's not an easy balance and to the point around the challenges in our market um, you know we're under siege from online on one side and um, the discounters like Aldi and Little on the other side we have to adapt our business we have to do a great job of explaining to our colleagues as to why we're adapting our business but you can't get away from the fact that that does one way or another impact on their, their lives on an individual basis and you have to be very respectful of that because um, it's too easy to do what I do and just look at the numbers as opposed to respect the fact that it is an individual who is affected by that particular change and you have to think quite carefully about how you communicate that collectively and then individually. Um, and that again plays back into the whole management philosophy because it's the managers in the front line who are actually having those conversations and unless they're doing a brilliant job of it then one way or another you lose your employees along the way. But talk to Simon and Angie. Thank you. I'm wondering whether Sainsbury's has ever contemplated switching to a more partnership model along the lines of the John Lewis partnership with its food outlet Waitrose. Um, I suspect it would be almost impossible to do as a public company, but um, we certainly, well, first of all, we have a lot of employees who own shares, so um, something like 25,000 of our employees actually actively save, um, and at the end of that active saving will become shareholders. Um, so at one level, we have a lot of employee shareholders. Um, as a public company, I, don't, I have no idea how you'd enable the transaction, and um, I guess I have to be slightly careful how I characterise this. It's not necessarily the panacea. Sure. Um, you know, if you look at the challenges of the John Lewis partnership at the moment, at one level, 
their employees do benefit um, philosophically from the partnership scheme and get bonuses on the back of that. But on the other hand, that's quite difficult if it's challenging times because in the end the partners who ultimately own the company aren't necessarily going to make the right choices to secure the future employment and the future success of that organisation. And so for every good aspect of partnerships, and I can get where you're coming from, there are potential downsides in terms of the degree to which you can enable and make change happen in an organisation which has a partnership uh, structure. But I'm, again, the government's not particularly helpful on this. In, in the past, employee share schemes have been easier to enact. Um, I'd certainly want to be in a position where our employees have more um, skin in the game um, through share, op, share ownership, but that's not an easy thing to do with the way that um, corporately um, you do these things. Um, you know, we have talked in the past about whether or not we could give our employees more shares, but it's just a really difficult thing to do. The other experience is that when, when colleagues have the option to sell shares, generally speaking, they do. Um, so even if you give shares, quite often they won't hang on to them. They will, generally speaking, seek to realise the money and spend it on a nice car or a, a nice holiday or whatever. So you have to find a way of locking them in if you want it to work. Thank you. Um, we've been talking quite a bit about the importance of leadership, and um, I was just wondering if you could share some of the more, I don't know if you have concrete tools around helping leaders drive employee well-being, in the sense, you know, being aware that it's a tough job that they're doing, and how do you help them actually kind of keep track of their employee well-being, and how do you help them foster it more? Yeah, um, a really good question, and I, I sort of live in a slightly odd world where as I say, this, if you take my day to day, I started this morning talking to three and a half thousand people online, give me direct feedback, and believe me, they give me direct feedback of what's on their mind, and then I'm in the city of London for the rest of the day talking to shareholders <laughs> who, to be quite honest, never ask me a question about employee satisfaction and well-being at all. Um, it's just completely off their radar. I don't think I've ever been asked a direct question on any of the issues that we've talked about or many of the issues that we've talked about this evening. They kind of take it in the background that we're an organisation that's trusted and has got a very strong brand and that philosophically that has a whole series of things wrapped around it. But they, don't, they would never ask me about, you know, wouldn't start number one on the list of things to talk about and how, how engaged or happy are your employees. Um, so that kind of gives you a, a, a flavour for it. Um, we spend a lot of time internally as a leadership team listening to colleagues um, and ultimately, as I said, my philosophy, our philosophy would be one of servant leadership, which is to help our employees do a better job for our customers and for themselves uh, and do that um, with a, you know, a, a, an active feedback loop between what's going on for them individually and what's going on in their individual shop back to us so that we can try and do something about it. Not always successful, it has to be said, um, and not always easy to fix the issues that we have either on an individual store basis or you know, perhaps even on a collective basis. So there's always that sort of balance and tension. But I, I kind of live in this slightly odd world where at one level I'm driving 
the allocation of resources across a very large organisation, um, some big numbers, but on the other hand, I do see it as my responsibility, and indeed the leadership team see it as their responsibility of saying close to our frontline colleagues and kind of seeing what happens as a result of our behaviours and actions. Because as I say, the easiest thing to lose sight of is the fact that you're dealing with real people's lives and you just look at it as numbers and as soon as you do that, in my view, you're, you're failing as a leader. Let, let's just co 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 collect the last four questions and then take them all together. Shall okay, we? I'm yeah. going to have to write these down. Yes. <laughs> Uh, one of the previous companies you worked for, Iceland, had a recent uh, Christmas ad, I think it was, um, uh, pointing out how they were going no longer to use any palm oil, and this uh, ad was criticised or even um, rejected by the um, authority as being too political. In terms of well-being, uh, you know, climate change, is, of which that is an example of how to combat it, is one of the huge biggest um, issues which society as a whole uh, is facing. Uh, do you think that um, business, in particular large businesses such as Sainsbury's, should, ought to be taking a lead in tackling climate change through the things that they do, or given their fiduciary responsibilities, should they just follow along whatever governments mandate them to do? I was aware some years ago Sainsbury's had a flagship store in North Greenwich, I think, but I must admit, although I shop at Sainsbury's frequently, I'm not the faintest idea what Sainsbury's is doing in terms of, of being a leader in terms of combating climate change. Let's move on. Okay. Okay, you too. Hi. Um, so one of the key issues regarding bad mental health in the workplace is being overworked and the issue of work-life balance. I just wanted to ask you both, how do you think this should be tackled against a lack of resources and a fast-working environment which seems to be almost everywhere in the city and versus management um, who don't see it as an option to hire more people or ease the workload? Okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, for both of you, actually, I would just like to know on a personal level what you do to keep your well-being up when you're working. Keep up? Your well-being at work, how do you keep yourself uh, <laughs> fit and healthy? Well, there's a long time, this lady. These two ladies here, and then we'll stop. Hello. Um, I would be interested in the measurement of well-being. Um, for me, well-being is mostly... Uh, the physical, psychological, and social well-being, uh, which is also in line with the World Health Organization's definition of health. Um, and I just wondered if you are covering these aspects in your engagement surveys. Thank you. Thank you for your talk today. I have a question related maybe to this one and also the one before about climate change. Um, you framed recently the topic of food waste under well-being which I find very interesting, but my main point is um, what are your weaknesses from your point of view in terms of food waste? <laughs> and very specifically, I think there's a very large interest in LSE students in helping you making your zero well, food waste aim possible. Would you be interested in that? Good questions. Um, where do you want to go? So, um, I mean, if I start on the top line of sustainability, we would think that we're pretty much at the leading edge of a lot of sustainable um, 
issues, not just in the UK, but you might not believe this, that the UK, generally speaking, is at the leading edge of a lot of things that are going on in the world. And um, actually, to show how seriously we take it, we have one of our PLC board directors who chairs our um, Corporate Social Responsibility Committee and holds me to account for uh, the work we're doing in our sustainability programs, whether that's sustainability in our employment and uh, employee welfare or sustainability as far as climate change and um, the welfare of the planet is concerned. And again, the lady in the red jacket would be about as um, leading a world expert as you could have on the food industry and its impact on climate and would be one of the leading exponents of things that our industry could and should be doing to improve our impact on environment. Um, on the specific of palm oil, this is quite a difficult subject because on one hand we'd absolutely recognise that palm oil um, has all sorts of issues around the growth of palm oil and deforestation, but it is one of the most efficient crops. Uh, and so you have to be, I'm now looking at Judith to make sure I'm technically correct, it's one of the most efficient, if not the most efficient sources of vegetable oil. And therefore vilifying palm oil in and of itself is not sensible vilifying palm oil grown in, un, in an unsustainable way is absolutely right. Um, but again, we're one of the early signatories to um, re responsible palm oil sourcing. And again, our industry more generally has a big issue or sorry, a big role to play in, in making palm oil sourcing more sustainable and ultimately stopping deforestation. But to vilify palm oil is a very dangerous thing to do because ultimately it's a very efficient crop um, for food production. Um, yeah, overworking work-life balance, it would be, if we're looking at our employee, I forget who was it you that asked the question, if we looked at our employment surveys, it would be one of the areas that would be, particularly in the centre of our business, highlighted um, as a, an issue. Um, trying to find ways of being more flexible in the way that we work, um, particularly through the use of technology as a way of um, perhaps overcoming that particular challenge, but I can't get away from the fact um, that it is a, an issue for an organisation like ours, not least in the centre of our business. Actually, in our stores, broadly speaking, people work the hours that we pay them and you know, we contract them to work certain hours. So actually, that gives them a high level of flexibility. And I would argue, um, for most of our store employees, um, although I'm sure they would consider they work very hard when they're working with us and for us, they will, generally speaking, absolutely work the hours that they're contracted to work, get paid for working those hours, and quite often will um, flex their work to make sure that they can um, engage in other things in their lives. So I would argue that at that level, our store teams um, probably have a better and easier way of managing their work-life balance than some of the teams in the centre of the organisation, if, if that makes sense. Um, I hope, I mean, it was a question on, on measurement. I, I hope that we um, do do some of the things that you've highlighted. Um, I think there was a conversation that we've had about whether or not we're measuring the right thing. So um, what, you know, the upside of having an employee survey that you've been running for 15 years is that you can see the trends uh, and you can see the movements and therefore you've got the basis on which you challenge yourself and measure yourself. The downside is that you're not necessarily capturing the questions of today. Um, and you have to be quite careful because as soon as you change the questions or change the orders of the questions, you're almost inevitably going to have to rebase everything that you've done historically. And I'm not sure there's an easy way of picking your way through that. But certainly one of the challenges that Richard would have for us as an organisation is are you measuring the right things in the right way? Uh, and I take that on board. And one of 
the interesting things about engaging in this whole Live Well for Less survey is to challenge us as an organisation to change the way that we are doing things, and that starts with um, measuring employing, employee engagement and employee satisfaction, employee well-being in the way that you've described. Um, and then on the specifics of, of food waste, um, we um, have a pretty straightforward philosophy, which is... Um, first point is we'd like to sell our customers our potential food waste, so that's the first port of call, and we do a lot of that um, by marking things down um, and selling them at a discount at the end of our trading days. Uh, if we can't do that, we're happy to give food away to charities, uh, and we do. There's something like 1,400 of our shops have relationships with food partners, um, food donation charities. If we can't do that, we'll we'll um, give the food away for animal feed, and if we can't do that, we'll put it to anaerobic digestion to produce uh, energy. We don't put any waste, food waste into landfill. Um, it's a little bit naive to think that we could um, find a way of humanly consuming every piece of food that we potentially waste in our business, partly because many of the products that we sell have finite shelf lives. You know, they um, have... You know, bacteriological issues if you take them beyond those shelf lives and partly because the waste in our business is completely random um, or very random so um, guaranteeing if we could guarantee we knew what we were going to waste we wouldn't waste it if that <laughs> no, makes sense no, no. Um, and if you're a local food charity you're not really interested in out of code sandwiches um, whether you're not and we couldn't give them to you even if you were, because generally speaking, if you're beyond the use by well, if you're beyond the use by use by date, they would potentially be dangerous to eat. So you, you look sceptical. Yeah, because I work for an organisation in um, Amsterdam who actually collects especially goods that are not healthy um, by date, and there's actually EU regulation that you can still then use them for laundry. Well, again, I'm looking to my food expert in the front row. Um, <laughs> Put it this way, if you're managing a reputation of a company that's built on trust and you're potentially putting any um, consumer at risk and, you know, in the end, the kind of philosophy you're talking about would ultimately potentially be a risk to our consumers, you would do that um, at your peril. Um, so it, it, we, would, we have no food to... To landfill, we as philosophically have been in that situation for almost 10 years now, um, and we would be the first to want to give away all of our food waste to food donation and food charities. But it's not as straightforward as perhaps you're characterising. Mike, did you introduce me to a new phrase? I don't know. The, the servant leader is that was that the phrase that you used? Uh, it's not. It's not. A Mike Coop phrase. It is a phrase that's. It's a wonderful phrase, and I've never, never heard it before. And I, I'm, I would like to be led by you. I mean, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> Crikey, that's a very dangerous um, position yeah, to I be. Mean, you, you've been so wonderfully open, and we, we know that your concern here is absolutely sincere, and it's really inspiring to hear you talk about these things. Not surprised that you've uh, got such a high rating from your your workforce, uh, and. Um, just a privilege to listen to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Very much.